Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having been put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Our Father, we thank you for the miracle of the new birth, how you took, as this text explains, both Jew and Gentile and made them into one man, the church, where the dividing wall has been removed and there's peace. Thank you for the miracle of bringing the nationalities and the nations together for those who know and love Jesus. We pray for Israel. We know that one of these days, this church that is largely Gentile, the body of Christ will be removed and you will take over through the people of Israel. And you will use them as a nation to bring men and women and boys and girls to Christ. And you said this gospel during that time of the kingdom will go to the whole world and then Jesus will come back. We look forward to the rapture, but we also look forward that when we will come back with him at his second coming. The world, Father, is seemingly in a mess, but you are sovereignly and providentially orchestrating every single circumstance. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. This morning, as your people, as we open our hearts to you, we ask that the Spirit of God would speak to us, that he would take the Scripture that he inspired and illumine it to our hearts that we might understand it and apply it. Help me, fill me, and anoint me, and use me, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you're new to the Bible, just find the first page in the New Testament, Matthew. Turn back a few pages and you will quickly be in Malachi. It's not Malachi. It's not Malachi. Uh, His name is a Jewish name. He was not some Italian prophet. He is a Jewish man as every single book of the Old Testament was given to us by the Hebrew nation. God has been good. Our Savior is a Jew, and those who oppose the Jews, and it's increasing across our world, and even in these United States, right down to the high school level where there are demonstrations in this nation this past week. Those are people who've never met the living God. The anti-Semite is a lost man. I hope you know that. They're lost people, and they need to hear the gospel that they might be saved. And so we need to continue to pray for the Jewish people and their protection. In the end, God will have his way. Now, this prophet Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament era. He lived some 400 years before the coming of Christ. And during that 400-year period, there was no prophet in Israel. He is a great prophet. He spoke with great power and a profound and practical message. He lived at the end of an age. He lived at an age when it was very dark and dismal. 
And the scripture makes a comparison between what life was like when Jesus came the first time and what it will be like when he comes back. So there are many parallels, but as we'll see, he looks all the way down the corridors of time to a future time, to the time when God will set up his final way for Messiah to return. Here's an overview of Malachi. I hope you're reading it. It's only 55 verses. You can read it in about 12, 13 minutes. You should try to read through it once a week. That would be a good thing to do. Uh, It helps me, at least when I do that, to put the book together, and I am able to hopefully think my way all the way through it. There are three major parts in these four chapters. Now, there's just three chapters in my Hebrew Bible, but they have the same verses. They just divide it a little bit differently. But nonetheless, the opening five verses are a picture of the declaration of God's love. It speaks of God's care in the past. If you remember, the people were questioning whether or not God really loved them and cared for them, and he reminded them that he chose the descendants of Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Yitzrael, Israel. He chose the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of Esau to bring the Messiah. Yes, he loved them. And the second section that begins, um, as you can see here, in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through 3.15, we're in the second section today, we're dealing with the disloyalty of God's people. And this is God's complaint in the present. He's dealing with issues in which these people had strayed away in their hearts from serving the Lord. We saw the first one when the people were giving sacrifices that were substandard, sacrifices they would never dream of giving to some earthly governor, but they would give to the living God. And of course, the priests accepted them, and the priests were wrong, and this is why even in the church today, the leaders are to be above reproach, because as the leaders go, typically so the church goes, And the Bible warns that if we're privileged to lead in some capacity, we will incur a stricter judgment. We'll give an account for those whom God has called us to deal with. Um, Then in a few weeks, we'll come to the third division that deals with the deliverance, the deliverance by God's servants. And again, this is looking down the corridors of time to this final time frame of, of human history known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called by Jesus the Great Tribulation Period. And it refers to this coming time when God will fix things. It seems like things are a mess now, but one of these days God's going to fix every jot and tittle and he will make it right. Now we've seen that there are 23 questions in the book, but there are seven questions that have a particular similar structure where they'll say, this is what God says, but this is what the people say. And so as you read through the book again this week, uh, underscore when it says, but you say, or yet you say, because he does that seven times to highlight six particular sinful issues the people were plagued with. Today we come to the fifth issue, just to dust off your minds. Here's a chart where we've been so far. In chapter one and verse two, we saw the people were debating God's love. Does God really love us? How have you loved us, God? And God reminded them, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It did not mean that God chose one young man to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. We saw in the context, it went back to Genesis 25, two nations that were in Rebekah's womb, and God chose one nation over the other. He had to use one particular people in which to bring the, the Messiah of the world, and he chose Jacob, later named Israel. Then we saw the second issue, if you'll bring that up, And it was indeed despising God's name. The name of God represents the person of God. 
And they despised God's name by the way they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Then the third major sinful issue, starting in chapter 2 and verse 10, was debasing God's covenant. God had made a covenant with the nation. He called the nation his children, and he was indeed their father. And so repeatedly, the Old Testament speaks of the children of Israel. God expected them to marry only believers. But what were they doing? They were divorcing their wives and they were marrying pagan women. And so God dealt with that very specifically. We saw the fourth challenge in chapter 2 and verse 17 where they were debating God's justice. It's the age-old question, is God really fair? And if you know this prophet, you know with each of these six sins, he says, this is what God says, but this is what you say. And then he comes back with a corrective kind of instruction. The fifth challenge in chapter 3 and verse 7, where we come to today, concerns depleting God's storehouse. By their failure to follow the Lord, they stopped tithing. Now, sadly, this is about the only section of Malachi that most believers have ever heard. I like to take whole books of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you think I'm just one of those preachers here today to preach on money, it's just the next paragraph. We're picking up where we left off. Now, some people would say, well, pastor, don't talk about money. Talk about something that's spiritual. And that kind of statement is grossly ignorant because throughout Scripture, God links spirituality to money. Jesus told 38 parables, 16 of those parables deal with the subject of our possessions. And this concept of tithing goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the 14th chapter, where we find Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And let me just say, I know when some people hear the word tithing, they say, well, this is just something the Old Testament believers did. We don't do it today in the church. This is something that's legalistic. I want you to think your way through that before you just jump to that conclusion. Malachi chapter 3, follow along, beginning now in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I hope you know that while you're interested in your money, God is interested in your money. Not because God needs your money. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 50 and verse 12, God speaking, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. But since you are important to God, your money is important to God. And God indexes your spiritual health to your money habitually through the scripture. God knows that money will keep some people out of heaven. If you remember in the parable of the sower, Jesus describes four kinds of soil. Only on one soil do people represent those who embrace the gospel, some in a more fruitful way than others. But on the other three soils 
are descriptive of unbelievers and why they don't come to faith. And on the thorny soil, for instance, Mark records, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. A good example, of course, would be the rich young ruler who is unwilling to be saved. Why? Because his God was his money. So God's concerned about your money. He knows that it will keep many a person out of the kingdom of God, and he's interested in people's salvation, but God is also interested in our money because he's interested in our sanctification. Sanctification is that process whereby after you are born again, God changes you, shapes you, and conforms you into the image of Christ. And to saved people, the apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root. It's not the root. The New American Standard is most precise. It's a root. It's not articular. For the love of money is a root. There's other roots of evil, but this is a major taproot. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, in the context, Paul is dealing with those believers who become susceptible to false doctrine. Why? Because their hearts have drifted and is captivated by money. And God doesn't want us to be captivated by money. But God is also interested in your money because he wants to give you a testimony of his own goodness, of his provision, of the kind of father that he is. And God is going to give us some principles this morning of how he opens out the windows of heaven and pours upon us a blessing. And if you're wise, you'll pull up the shade, unlock the window, and listen very, very carefully. And as we've studied in the past, some of God's blessings are conditioned. Other of God's blessings are unconditional. There are some things God is going to do no matter what. But in the Old and the New Testament, I can't think of a single passage of Scripture where when God addresses the issue of money, that it's some kind of unconditional promise. It's conditioned on God's obedience. So God's not trying to get something from us. He's trying to give something to us. But I'll tell you someone else who's interested in your money, and that's the devil. The devil wants you to be in financial bondage. And many Christians today are in financial bondage, and they have ruined their testimony before a lost world, and they're unable to give undistracted devotion to the kingdom of God. So there's a note-taking outline. If you're listening online, you can print it out. Three critical principles concerning God's plan for financial success. The first principle is that we, his people, must know that God's plan originates with a return to the tithe. God's plan originates with a return to the tithe. Look now, if you will, at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here again is the same pattern we've seen all the way through the book. God makes a charge, then there's a response by the people, And then God proceeds to give a defense of the charge with the appropriate application. So consider first the charge by God, the charge by God. God tells us here in verse 7, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So what do they need to do? They need to repent. Now, these were religious folks. They were showing up for the temple every Sabbath. They were jumping through all their little religious hoops of one sort or another. But you can be very religious 
and your heart can be out of sync, even as a believer. And sadly, there are people who come to churches like this every single week, and they're not really here to worship the living God. They're here just because it's the religious thing to do. And many times when God's people drift into that kind of spirituality, they create all kinds of problems for themselves, and they begin to cry and complain. And and the problem is, the real problem is, from the days of your fathers, you've turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. To turn away from God's statutes is to leave a clear boundary that God has called us to walk in. And God's marked it clearly, and they needed to repent. And if you've not learned it yet, many of the problems, in fact, most of the problems we face, not all, but most, are self-generated. Many times as a pastor, all I do is open the Scripture and say, well, this is what you're doing, but here's what God says you should do. And we discover that there's real freedom when we obey what God says. So that's the charge by God. In addition, there's the response of the people, the response of the people. God says here in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And the people say, who, who us? You don't mean us. What have we done wrong? How shall we return? God is calling the people to repent. And so instead of just obeying They're arguing with the prophet of God. They remind me of those people who want to evade the will of God, and they say, well, define your terms. And these were people who had blunted consciences. These were people who had dulled moral perceptions of life. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated here, return, is used commonly in the Old Testament to describe repentance. Repentance is a word that means in both Hebrew and Greek. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used in the New Testament for repent or repentance is the same word that's used here in the Hebrew text. It means in both Hebrew and in Greek to change your mind, to do an about face. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. You cannot truly believe without repenting. Now understand, in the most Uh, in in the one book in the New Testament whose specific objective, among other things, is to get people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing they might find life in his name, the Gospel of John, the word repent, never appears. But if you truly present faith correctly, then implicit in genuine faith is the concept of repentance. And repentance, a change of mind about sin and how it's a violation of God's standards, and really the heart of all sin, Jesus said in Luke's gospel, is we do not want him to rule over us. The cause of acts of sins is a singular sin. We don't want him to be our king. We don't want him to reign over us. And you can't come to the living Christ with that spirit of rebellion and expect to find his forgiveness. But not only is repentance something the unbeliever does, it's not cleaning your act to come to Christ. You can't clean up your act. The man who sins is a slave to sin. But when you come to Christ, he definitely cleans up your life. But repentance is something that is also spoken of, like in this passage, to believers. And so these people are basically saying, what on earth do we need to repent of? They were ignorant of any wrongdoing and really unwilling to accept responsibility for their disobedience. And so with that comes the charge. 
And remember, the point of return always is the point of departure. So now Malachi's defense of the charge. Point C there on your outline. Malachi's defense of the charge. Malachi starts his defense with one of the great and startling questions in all of Scripture. We read now in verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now don't miss the force of this simple little question. Will a man rob God? Will a little old created person rob the almighty God of the universe? Will someone steal from their creator who gave them the very breath of life? Now, you don't need to know Hebrew to realize that this is an incredible question from the point of view that a mere human could steal from God. But certainly, when you read it in the Hebrew text, there's some elucidation that we might not pick up in the English Bible. The word that's translated here, rob, in the Hebrew um, Bible, the, the, the noun and the verb are connected. The noun gives us the word Yaakov, Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, he was kind of a con man. He was kind of a ripoff artist. But this is the word Jacob in verb form. You could render it, will a man Jacob God? Will you rip off God like Jacob was a thief? And God, of course, had to break Jacob. God brought him through a long process. And ultimately there in Bethel, the Lord met him. And I, I've been to Bethel just once. And we don't usually go there ever with tour groups. I went on my own. And uh, it's just an amazing place when you think here was this ladder between God and heaven and angels ascending and descending and he met the living God. He had a picture of the living Messiah and his heart was fully broken and God changes his name from Yaakov to Yitzrael, Israel. And so the people would say, no, we would never rob God. To rob man is bad enough. But to rob God is absolutely unthinkable. They would have denied the charge. They would have asked for proof. Will a man rob God? Of course we would never rob God. And so anticipating their objection, Malachi comes back and says, yet you are robbing me. And so he has to spell it out for these thick-minded, callous people. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. Now remember, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything. When Paul is up there on Mars Hill and he's preaching to pagan Athenians, he reminds them, neither is he, God, served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. In similar fashion, in Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. God's not trying to get from you. God is trying to give to you, but he has to get you first. It's you that God wants. And as we'll see this morning and in other passages, tithing is not simply a way in which God finances his work. It's principally a way in which he grows his people. And so I think it's often overlooked that tithing here in this particular paragraph of Scripture is set in the context of repentance. The nation had turned aside. They were living in disobedience. And God is calling them to return to repent. And again, their, their unwillingness to do what God says was rooted in this rebelliousness of heart. And so tithing or giving of any kind is just an expression 
of that rebelliousness. And so God in scripture will often use giving as a barometer of where our people are spiritually. If you remember in Hezekiah's day, there was a great revival. And what did the people do? They responded in tithes and offerings. And stewardship is seen in the same way in the New Testament. And one of the greatest expressions that you are growing and getting right and you are moving forward in this process of sanctification is how you manage your finances. Listen, you can come to church, you can sing all you want, you can have tears in your eyes, but the consecration that doesn't reach your wallet has not reached your heart. And Jesus will underscore that when he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, if I wrote that verse, I would have reversed it. I would have said, for where your heart is, there will your treasure be. That's not what Jesus said. He said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying that where you have an investment, your interests will follow. Growing up as a child, my dad had delivered five days a week to the door of the Wall Street Journal. The only section of the newspaper that I was interested in, back then it was the center column, where it gave all the highlights of what was happening in the country and interesting tidbits of information and the like. But my dad would take that newspaper and he'd go to the back section and listed where hundreds of stocks. Now, to me, it was very boring. But if you had, say, $20,000 in IBM, you would go to the back section, you'd read the fine print, and you'd want to see, is my stock going up or is it going down? And so your investments are followed by your heart. Where are your investments? You tell me a church who says we're interested in missions but they don't have any missionaries. They're really not interested in missions. You tell me a businessman who says, I'm interested in my family. You show me his schedule and his schedule will reflect how much of a priority his family will be. And so Jesus plainly taught that your interests will follow your investments. And this is why, again, when God wants to test a person's spirituality, he goes to the the subject of money. Now, I didn't know anything about tithing when I became a Christian at the age of 18. As far as I know, I never even heard the word tithe. And then when I was about 18 and a half years old, I had been saved for about six months, I heard my very first sermon on tithing. And I realized, well, this is something that God calls us to do. And not to do it is basically to disobey. It's an obedience issue. James says the one who does knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. Maybe you're thinking, I I wish I hadn't come this morning. I'd rather be in ignorance and not responsible. But if that's your attitude, you're already out of fellowship with the Lord. Again, this is something that God wants for us. He describes, as we studied recently on a Wednesday night, his will as that which is perfect, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The tithing concept comes from the mind of an absolutely loving God. And because God loves people, he wants the best for people. And when his people don't obey what he asks them to do, he disciplines them. He doesn't discipline everyone. He disciplines those whom he loves, those who are born again, as Proverbs underscores and as the writer of the Hebrews quotes. And so in verse 9, these people were under God's discipline. Why? Because they were believers. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. When you rob God, God's not the loser. You and I are the losers. 
Now, please understand, in Malachi's day, he is addressing a culture that was rooted in agriculture. And to be cursed with a curse meant their crops were not producing. It meant their animals were not multiplying. It meant the fruit was falling off the tree before it was ripe. Again, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He loves everyone, but he has a special affection to those who are his children. And so the writer will say, if you're without discipline, you're not true sons, you're illegitimate. And so these were people who were in financial bondage because they refused to tithe. And sadly, many of God's people today are in a form of financial bondage. Have you ever found yourself charging necessities like food or maybe a battery for the car or paying the light bill, the power bill? Because you didn't have the money, so you had to charge it. That's someone who typically is in financial bondage. Do you ever put off paying a bill to the next month because you don't have the money this month? That's someone who's in financial bondage. Do you have creditors hounding you? That's someone who's in financial bondage. Do you take out new loans to consolidate all the old loans so you can make a payment? Typically, someone who is in financial bondage. But I want to say those things may not be true of you, but there are other ways in which God's people can be in financial bondage. Some people worry about money 24-7. That's all that consumes them. They're in financial bondage. And God doesn't want us to be distracted. Some people are always trying to raise their lifestyle. So they're in financial bondage. And so financial bondage will keep you from laying up treasure that is in heaven. People say money talks. Yes, it does. It says goodbye. (laughs) Proverbs says, when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heaven. 50, 75 years from now, everything you own, someone else is going to own. And if you really want to know how wealthy you really are, don't look at your bank account. Add up all those things that money cannot buy and time cannot take away, and you'll have a sense of what your real eternal treasure is. But it's unfortunate that many of God's people in our day, just like in Malachi's day, were in financial trouble. And indeed, they're not prepared when hard times come because they've not learned to live by faith. And so the first principle is that God's plan originates with a return to the tithe. Again, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't simply want your religion. He wants your heart. And we can jump through all the religious hoops and our heart can be a million miles away. Now understand, when I speak on this subject... There's no self-gain in this. I've been tithing for 50-plus years now. And God has always met my needs, and he will always meet my needs. But God wants his people to understand that the point of return starts with the point of departure. And some of us used to tithe. We used to obey. Some of us are learning this concept for the first time. And we need to decide what we're going to do. So, secondly on your outline, God's plan necessitates the release of the tithe. So God's plan originates with a return to the tithe, but God's plan necessitates a release of the tithe. Now please notice, if you will, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. 
Now, there are several truths that I want you to notice from this verse. The very first one, tithing involves a definite proportion. Tithing involves a definite proportion. The Bible refers to a definite proportion when it uses the word tithe. In both the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, the word tithe is actually a mathematical term, and it means one-tenth. Now, many times Christians will use the term tithe very loosely. They may bring $5 to church to put in the offering bag, and they say, they say to themselves, well, Lord, here's my tithe. And it would be a tithe if they made $50 that week. Then 10% would be $5. But most of the time, Christians use the term in less than a biblical fashion, just to describe any kind of money that they give. But even if you're not a student of Greek or Hebrew, you could figure it out all on your own that the word tithe is a mathematical term that means 10%. How do we know that? You go back to Genesis chapter 14, you go to Hebrews chapter 7, you learn that Abraham gave a tenth of all he had to Malachi, and that tenth is known as a tithe. Now, I must tell you, sooner or later you will hear it. There will be Christian teachers today who will say, well, the Old Testament taught tithing, but that was an Old Testament practice, and it has no application for today. Well, listen, if you've heard that error, I hope you'll think your way through it, because that is not true. And sadly, I think most people who teach that do so because they don't want to tithe. And so they come up with a convenient excuse for not tithing. None of the church fathers, not one, show me one, the church fathers who wrote after the apostles died, all kinds of commentary in the Old New Testament, not one of them, not one, taught that tithing was not applicable for the New Covenant Church. Not one Protestant reformer taught that tithing was not applicable for the New Testament Church. In fact, the very first time we find people arguing as best I can tell, was through, at least in a popular way, was in 1909 when the Schofield Study Bible came out. And Dr. Schofield had a lot of good things to say, but for him, he relegated tithing to the trash bin of history. No, as we'll see in a moment, it has as much application in the Old Testament era as it does for today. Listen, God only has to say something once for it to be true. For instance, nowhere in the New Testament does God ever say that it's wrong for a man to have an intimate relationship with an animal? But it's underscored in Exodus 22 and Leviticus 18. Never recorded in the New Testament. I can tell you that the sin of bestiality is as much a sin as it was in Moses' day as it is in our day. I might add that Solomon and Job and Moses, who spoke about not altering the boundary markers of your neighbor's land so that you could steal from him, found nowhere in the New Testament. But I can tell you it has full application for today. It is true that tithing is taught in two gospels, and it's referred to in the book of Hebrews, really illustrated, and it's not, yet it's not commanded directly anywhere in the New Testament epistles. Well, let me just say, baptism is commanded in the gospels, it's illustrated in the epistles. It's seen all the way through the book of Acts, but it's never once commanded in any of the New Testament letters. Does that mean that we say baptism has no application for today? I think not. Listen, it is true that the final arbiter of the historical sections of the Bible are the epistles, because a, a book like Acts represents a transitory time. 
And so God ultimately codifies it. And you even see within the Acts, like at the Jerusalem Council, them codifying certain new covenant practices that were different from the Old Testament. But with that said, again, just because baptism isn't commanded in the epistles doesn't mean that we don't obey it. Listen, the laws of incest found nowhere anywhere in the New Testament. But I hope you know that it's wrong to marry your sister. And so a good rule of thumb is that as you sort out Old Testament passages, if it was simply symbolic of what the Messiah would accomplish on the cross, then it has a time-dated application. For instance, none of you brought an animal sacrifice to church today. Why? Because of the once and for all sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. From the time of Moses in 1440 BC, all the way into the start of the early church, there were people, Old Testament and New Covenant believers that practiced the laws of kosher food. They ate certain foods and didn't eat other foods. They didn't eat bacon burgers or shrimp scampi or, oyster, or have oyster roast. <laughs> we had our Jewish rabbi here, and many of us, and he's doing well. But when Hanok Teller was here, um, at the end of the thing, I had to announce something that we were having the next Friday night, and I said, we're having a pig picking, chicken licking oyster roast. Two of those foods in the menu were anything but kosher. But listen, Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declared all meats clean. He said, what defiles a man is not what goes into his body and then is eliminated, but what comes out of his heart. And God illustrates the same principle in Acts 10 when he gives Peter a vision. So I'm just saying that if there is some law that was either time-bound, I don't have to sort it out when we come to the dietary laws, but there are some issues that are time-bound because they were part of the ceremonial law. And so the question is, is tithing part of the ceremonial law or is it part of God's eternal law? And while we're here, I think you need to know that there will some people, because I think they want to discourage you from tithing, they'll say the New Testament tithe, if you're going to do it, was not, as recorded in the Old Testament, 10%, but 13%, and some would say it was 23%. How do they come up with that? They say, well, Malachi 3.10 just represents the first of three tithes that the people gave to the Levites in Jerusalem. But there was a second tithe, and they'll appeal to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Now, I go through this with a fine-tooth comb and my course on finances, but I'm going to hit a few of the highlights. But if you still have questions, take the course. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 14. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to, chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And so you brought a portion of the tithe to the place where God wanted his name registered, namely the temple in Jerusalem. And there was a portion of that tithe that you ate there as a reminder. This is all God's. And even as we put it in our mouths, It's the living God's. So that, he says, you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town for he has no portion or inheritance among you. 
Clearly, this is not a second tithe. This is just a different way to give the tithe because there are many people who didn't have immediate access to Israel. Remember, there were Levites all across the land of Israel. They didn't jump in their car and drive to temple. It was a big shmeal even to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so what did they do? They, they translated those agricultural crops into money. And the Levites, and God had his Levites spread all across the land. Why? Because the Levites taught the law of God. Not everyone could come and listen to the rabbis in the temple. And so they would listen to the, the, the Levites who lived in their neighborhood. And so this was just a different way as to how they gave the tithe. If the distance is so great that you're not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord your God chooses. And so they translated the uh, crops into cash and it was given accordingly. They say there's a third tithe that is given every three years, a third tenth, which would annually you know, turn into 3%. And they would appeal to this passage. Listen to these words, Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you. Remember, they had no land, the Levite. Their job was full-time ministry. And so for them to function in that way, they had to be cared for. The Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you. And the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand that you do. Now, let me read Deuteronomy 14 with Nehemiah chapter 10, and you will discover that indeed, this is not an additional tithe. It's just how it was handled in the third year. God is plain when he makes this statement in Nehemiah chapter 10. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of God, that's in Jerusalem, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. Remember, they live a far distance away. They couldn't come to Jerusalem. They translated the crops and the cash, and the Levites were the stewards. And of course, the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. This is the same tenth. He is just specifying that every third year, knowing that it was not all needed in Jerusalem, that in the local proximities that the orphan, the widow, and the alien, along with the Levite there, might be taken care of. And let me just say parenthetically, no one in the history of the church until the early part of the 20th century saw this formula that a tithe was not 10%, that it was 13% or 23%. And you cannot find an Orthodox Jew on the face of the earth who will tell you that a tithe was 13% or 23%. A tithe, again, it's a mathematical term, it simply means a tenth. And so God knew that the Levites out in the towns did not need the full tithe in order to carry on his work. And so every third year, there was a provision made for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Now, there's a lot there. Listen to the course, and I go through every single verse carefully. But in addition, I think one of the most compelling arguments 
that a tithe was simply 10% is how the Levites led by example. Listen to this in Numbers chapter 18. Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take the sons of Israel the tithe, which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. In other words, the Levite received his portion, and what did he do? He gave a tithe of the tithe. He didn't say, well, I work for the Lord and I don't have to give. No, there's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture, and this is especially underscored in the book of Hosea and by the prophet Jeremiah, is that the people lead by the example, followed by the example of the leaders. God doesn't say, well, the leaders can give less than what the people give. What do the Levites give? A tenth. That's why at Community Bible Church, if someone wants to be a deacon or an elder, and they've reached that leadership level of one of two offices in the New Testament church, we expect them to tithe. Do we ask them for their W-2s? Some 30 years ago, some lying, unbelieving person started a rumor that I still hear to this day, that if you join Community Bible Church, they ask to look at your W-2 forms to see if you're giving a tithe. Have we ever done that, yes or no? Never. We never even looked at an elder or a deacon's W-2 form, so to speak, or their tax records. It's simply a faith issue. But we can't ask them to lead the people if they're not willing to go in the same direction that they're asking of the people. But for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument, let's say that this new teaching that originated in the first part of the 20th century is true. That the tithe was not 10%, but 13%, as some say, or even 23%, as others say. Even if that were true, it would not change by what we find in the record of Scripture that a tenth is a tenth. Think your way through this for just a second. The very first practice of tithing in all of Scripture is Genesis chapter 14. And Malachi gives what? He gives a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek and that giving act is recorded again in Hebrews chapter 7. Some people view Melchizedek as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ like the angel of the Lord. I don't see that. But even if he were, it wouldn't change anything. But he is certainly an illustration of Christ. Why? Because when you read about Melchizedek, he has no genealogy. And so like Christ, it appears he has no beginning or end. And the Lord Jesus, who's the eternal God, who took on human flesh, has no beginning or end. He was not created, as the cults say. He took on our humanity. He left heaven. And so here was Abraham. He gave a tenth. In addition, in Genesis 28, again, hundreds of years, ever before it was codified by Moses, Remember, Abraham lived some 600 years before Moses. Jacob comes along and he gives a tenth. Now, why did these men give a tenth? Why didn't they give 3% or 5% or 25% or even 100%? Because no doubt God revealed to them how much they should give. What is Abraham dubbed as the father of the faithful? Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, certainly remember the very first verse of Scripture, Genesis 1-1, is penned initially by Moses. 
He is hundreds of years after Abraham. So God spoke in many portions in many ways, and he gave, I think, direct revelation to Abraham, and that's why Abraham gave a tenth. But here's the point, is ever before God puts it in a code, so to speak, under Moses, you find the saints of God, the fathers of Israel, giving a tenth. Later on, Moses will command a tenth. Malachi, as we're seeing this morning, speaks of a tenth, as does Nehemiah. And then when you come into the New Testament, Christ also speaks of a tenth. Do you remember in that day when he gave that scathing sermon during the last week of his public ministry? In Matthew 23, 23, he said to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those were spices in your garden. Oh, I got... 10 leaves here, I'll give one, one to the Lord. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done. That is, you should have paid tithes without neglecting the others, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, in Christ's mind, there is no competition between tithing and justice and mercy and faithfulness because it's all part of his moral law. It's all a part of what he expects us to do. Now, there are these churches today who say, well, we don't teach tithing. We teach grace giving. And ever since I've been a pastor, I've seen different ministries like Larry Burkett and the current day ministries on finances, and they say on average that churches that teach grace giving give 3% of their income. 3%. Listen, I believe in grace giving and that we have the full revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ, things that they looked forward to, things they couldn't even dream about, things they didn't fully comprehend. We have the full revelation of God. And if a new covenant believer can give at least what an old covenant believer gives, then he's a disgrace to grace. He's a disgrace to the grace of God. If anything, tithing is simply the starting place. Remember, Jesus never lowered the law. He never brought the law downward. If anything, he brought it upward. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard, that, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adultery. Or you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Like fashion, he raised up the law when he says in Matthew 5, 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has already committed adultery in his heart. Not committing physical adultery is still God's sin, but Jesus elevated the standard. And it's still a sin to rob God by not tithing. Jesus never said, well, in the Old Testament, it says not to steal, but I say steal a little. No, if anything, he raised it up. He raised the bar. And so tithing, if anything, is the starting place that should indeed be motivated by the grace of God. So Paul can write the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, enjoying all the splendor and glory of heaven, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, he incarnated himself, that's Philippians, right? That you through his poverty might become rich spiritually. This is not as Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland and all these false teachers use this verse. He's speaking about spiritual blessing, not you getting a big bank account. Tithing was taught before the law, tithing was taught during the law, and tithing was taught after the law. Abraham commenced it, Jacob continued it, Malachi commanded it, Jesus commended it. Who are you to cancel it? It is foolish to cancel what God says. May I remind you before you just flippantly take what some teachers are saying today, that tithing has no application for today. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you think God's men were ignorant for 1,900 years, and all of a sudden, these new modern teachers have this new insight that no one else saw, and that tithing is not applicable? Be careful before you say that to someone, because if you teach someone to break the least of these commandments... Jesus said, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not prepared to do that. So tithing involves a definite proportion. Secondly, tithing involves a definite place. It involves a definite place. Malachi 3 and verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, the storehouse in those days was located in the temple. We've already seen that from the instruction in Deuteronomy. And the tithes, according to 2 Chronicles 31 and Malachi, in, uh, uh, Nehemiah 13, the tithes were stored in a facility alongside the temple. That's where they stored it for the work of the Lord. They brought the whole tithe into the storehouse. They didn't give it to whomever or whatever they wanted to. And so Christians will sometimes say, well, I'm giving this to my aunt or my uncle, or I'm giving my tithe to help my nephew go to a Christian school. And that may be admirable, but that's not where your tithe belongs. People will say to me on occasion, I'm giving my tithe to search the scriptures. I said, it doesn't belong there. It belongs in your local church. Now, there's a place for offerings, but that's not where the tithe belongs, and most, myself included, believe that the storehouse today is the local body of believers. How do we know that? Well, listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, because of the Lord of the Sabbath was raised from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week, God's people at this point worship on the first day. There's coming a day during the millennial reign where we will go back and we will worship on Saturday. But right now on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save. Circle in your mind that word save. As he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Now, this verb save is the Greek word thesarizo that literally means in store. In fact, that's the way that King James translates it. And again, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that most Jewish people read. It's abbreviated in our English Bibles, LXX, called the Septuagint, because 70 men were involved in its translation. And the noun form of the verb that's used here in 1 Corinthians is translated storehouse. And so the two words are connected. 
put aside, literally, it's rather wooden, literally the Greek reads here, put aside in storehouse. And so you will hear Christians speak of storehouse tithing. One, because of verses like this, and two, because all the examples in the New Testament of the people of God giving was to the local assembly. And so, listen, even those who cared for widows and orphans and those who are hungry, they did so typically through the local church. And he notes there, you give as you may prosper. What is he referring to? He's just underscoring, look, if you have zero income, people sometimes come to me and they say, I have zero income and I feel very guilty that I'm not tithing. And I say, why do you feel guilty? You give as you may prosper. I've had single, or, or, or not single moms, but married women come and say, well, my husband's lost and he has no desire to tithe. And so we can't tithe. I said, well, look, you know, you don't have to feel bad about that. He's the head of your home. He's lost. You don't want him to think that you're after the money for the church. I said, does he ever give you money? Yeah, he gave me $20 last week just to go out and have a good time. Then give $2 back to the Lord. See, most of us somewhere have increased somewhere. But you see, what God is doing as a man prospers is he's making everything fair and equal and equitable. So the little 10-year-old child who earned a dollar yesterday could come and bring a dime. When do you teach your children to tithe? When they're five years old. You know, I paid my grandson some money. I said, how much is the tithe? He said, 50 cents, granddaddy. He's five years old. I said, that's right. 50 cents, that's what you give to the work of the Lord in the church, your dad pastors. If you make $100 this week as a teenager, $10 is a tithe. If you make $1,000 this week, $100 is a tithe. Now, if I had 10 pennies, put them across the front of this pulpit, and they were yours, could you give God a penny? Oh, of course I could. How about 10 $1 bills? Of course I could give God a dollar. How about 10 $100 bills? That's a lot of money. No, a tithe is a tithe is a tithe. That's what God teaches. And it makes everything equal so that even the child who's seven or eight or the teenager versus the guy who makes it hand over fist and is a millionaire can lay up in heaven the same amount of treasure. It's not just some nebulous feeling, well, what do I give this week? Oh, I don't know, maybe I'll give $100. Maybe I'll give $10. Where you get this feeling-oriented kind of experiential theology. God gave us some guidelines. In fact, remember that poor widow who gave two mites? Jesus said this of her, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. In what respect, Lord? For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all that she had to live on which is a reminder to me that giving is not simply an issue of percentages. Ultimately, it is an issue of the heart. And so, yes, we start with the tithe, and sometimes God moves us to give beyond a tithe. On the first day of the week, God's tithe is to come to God's house that God's work might be accomplished. Paul says that no collections be made when I come. He's not going to come and collect money for the mission work so that, uh, you know, we got to take this emergency offering. No, that's not how it works. Tithing involves a definite proportion for the work of the Lord. It also involves a definite purpose. Point C on your outline. Tithing involves a definite purpose. Again, we read here in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Why? So that there may be food in my house. That's the purpose. 
that there might be enough to do what God needs to be done. God's way of raising money for the local assembly is not for us to have some pancake sale. It's not for you to bring all your junk and we're going to have this huge bazaar. God's way is for God's people to bring the tenth to the storehouse. In one large financial ministry that you will hear of on WAGP, they said that if every member in the evangelical church were on welfare in America, that the average, bu- uh, the, the average budget of the average local church would literally double. And now that's interesting. I don't know where they get that, but it's interesting. But we do know because for four decades, it's shown that the average person in the average church only gives about 3%. And I'm talking about Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches now that have the gospel. Now, by God's grace, we're not there. We're not average, but there's always room for growth, and there's always new people and new believers, and some of you are hearing the concept of tithing for the first time just like I did when I was 18. So number one, God's plan originates with a return to the tithe. Number two, God's plan necessitates the release of the tithe. Roman numeral three, God's way yields the rewards of the tithe. Now let me delineate three rewards that are spelled out in these verses. First, God will renew your faith. He'll renew your faith. Let's read now all of verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God wants you to test him, to try him, to prove him, depending on your English translation. He wants you to test his faithfulness. Now, the Bible typically warns us not to test God with some rash or evil deed to see if he will punish us. Jesus, when he confronts Satan, he says, it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. And we'll see next time and when we come to verse 15 that there's a great danger in testing God when our hearts are not right. But in this one act of obedience, God invites us to test him. Put me to the test. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and just watch what will happen. And giving is something that is amazing. And God says, I want to open up the windows of heaven and pour out you a blessing until it overflows. And again, if you're wise, you'd pull up the shade and unlock the window and listen carefully. When Audrey and I got married, I worked for an organization before they restructured their salary. We were actually at a poverty level. We made $12,000. And it was actually below the poverty level. We got married, and I had been working for them for two years as a home missionary on college campuses. And I had to sell my childhood coin collection to raise $400 to finance our honeymoon. But we came back, and we had $50 in our pocket, and we had each other, and we loved each other. And my first two years um, on that particular campus, I slept on a borrowed bed. And we came back from our honeymoon knowing that we didn't have a bed to sleep on. And while we were gone, independently of anyone, God put it on someone's heart to give us as a wedding gift, a box spring and mattress. It was just amazing. Five years later, we went to seminary. We left with two kids. We came back with four kids. It was the longest master's program in the world at the time, 128 hours. They've lessened it. It was expensive. A four-year master's program, a three-year doctoral program, 
My wife stayed at home. She cared for our children. We came out of seminary debt-free, and we had more money in the bank than when we started. It was God's grace. We were not ignoring, well, we're in difficult times. We're not going to tithe. No, we tithed, and as we went through the years, we gave beyond a tithe. And we have increased it. After five years, we've increased it every single year. And I'm not going to tell you what percentage I'm at, but it just blows my mind sometimes what God can do. For nearly 50 years, I have tithed, and God has proved himself faithful. He has opened up the windows of heaven, and he's asking you to test him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Test him. He will be faithful to you. Secondly, not only will God renew your faith, God will rebuke the devourer. God will rebuke the devourer. Notice the promise in verse 11. Then when you tithe, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast, and you'll notice its grapes are in italics. It's not there, but it's implied, says the Lord of hosts. The new New American Standard says, in the field prove fruitless to you. The point is, is that he's writing to farmers, and he's saying, look, um, you're not going to be plagued by locusts like some of you are as the hand of discipline. You're not going to have too much rain or too little rain as some of you are. The fruit is not going to fall off the vine before it's ripe. God is going to lift the curse. This is a reversal of God's discipline because of their obedience. And God is not simply speaking to farmers. He's speaking to lawyers and doctors and teachers and preachers and plumbers and a 10-year-old boy who has some lawn business. And God is basically saying, look, your, your clothes will last longer. Your cars will run better. He's not saying you won't have any unplanned expenses. But he is saying that God will have a way of multiplying things for you. To give to get would be simply selfish. R.G. Letourneau used to say, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. And I think he was right in that. We're told not to give to get. We are told to give because it's an act of obedience. And with every act of obedience, we love him because he first loved us. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I've witnessed over and over and over again that people who tithe, they just have a way of managing the other 90% so much more wisely, whether it's saving or borrowing or investing or giving. And listen, there's coming a time. It's just a matter of when. It's not if. Now, for the first time, I finally hear the senators in our country talking about it. We're $33 trillion in debt. By the time this president leaves office, we'll be $36 trillion in debt. That's always been the breakpoint number that the government system for accounting has said. And when we hit $36 trillion, $1 trillion a year, $1 trillion a year at the current interest rate if it doesn't go up anymore will be needed just to pay the interest on the loan. That's more than our entire defense budget. The time to learn by, to live by faith is now. And we think by not giving, we have more. We make $500, and oh, if we give $50, we only have $450. I have learned over the years that I can do more with nine-tenths than I can do ten by ten-tenths all by myself. Yeah, we may rob God... But when we rob God, we have additional medical bills that maybe we wouldn't have had or leaky roofs or broken cars. 
A man will not, cannot rob God. And let me just say, tithing is not a fix-all. There's a whole package that God says about saving, about giving, about investing, about debt. And again, if you don't know his financial principles, take the course, searchthescriptures.org. But listen, if you're in some ungodly business and you think, well, I'm going to tithe, God's not going to honor that. It needs to be a legitimate business where you are in the center of God's will I could step out of the will of God tomorrow and go get a secular job. You know what? My finances would crash because God called me until the day I die to preach the word. As long as I have semblance of mind, I am going to preach by his grace. And if I stepped out of that call in my life, it would be disastrous for me. So understand tithing is in the context of obedience to the Lord, and God is simply asking them to consider the reversal of the curse if they will do what he said. Third, God will restore your testimony. Not only will he renew your faith and rebuke the devourer, God will restore your testimony. Notice verse 12, all the nations, he's speaking here about the Gentiles, the Goyim, the Ethnoi in Greek, all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God is telling his Hebrew people, and by extension to us, I'll give you a story to tell. I'll give you a testimony to the unbelieving nations around you. Do you know what I see this morning? I see among many of God's people that I meet across the land who have a terrible testimony. I see Christians declaring bankruptcy. I see Christians who are deep and dead and always barring and distracted from the work of the Lord because money consumes them. And I see people who are trying to bail themselves out. They'll get a second job. But what does God do? Because of their disobedience, he just makes a bigger hole in their pocket. Listen to what the prophet Haggai said. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. Haggai was a contemporary just before Malachi. Same problem, rebellious, disobedient people. There's not enough to be satisfied. And then he adds, and he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You say, God's blessing me. I just got a pay raise. And he just put a bigger hole in your pocket. How are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, when we fail to tithe, we rob God. When we fail to tithe, we rob God. Stealing from your fellow man is a horrible thing, but stealing from God is even worse. Now, I don't think for a moment anyone here would take their hand and stick it into the offering bag and take out something for himself. Though in my early years in the Ukraine, one of the functions of the deacons, they told me, because they had so many lost unbelievers under communism for 70 years who had come to churches, they had to watch them to make sure no one took anything out of the till. I'm sure none of us would do that here. But there's more than one way to rob God. And when we fail to tithe, we rob God. Secondly, when we fail to God, we rob ourselves. We rob ourselves. Again, God does not need your tithe as much as you need to give it. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. God's not trying to get your money as much as he wants to bless you. And again, he wants to open the windows of heaven. But do you know what the bottom line is for most people? Unbelief what it is. We just don't believe what God has said. Third, 
When we fail to tithe, we rob others. We rob others. The remnant who returned to Judah had a great opportunity to trust God and be a witness to the surrounding Gentile nations. God could use them by their testimony to win people. You say, Pastor, is there a connection between winning people to Jesus? Am I tithe? Yes, there is. If you're disobeying the known will of God, you're out of fellowship. The Spirit of God doesn't fill rebellious people, and your ability to influence pagans for the gospel is greatly diminished. But listen, by God's grace, we have a testimony as a church. People drive by this campus. I hear it all the time. They say, God's really blessing Community Bible Church. And I've heard about these hundreds of missionaries you have. Yes, and by God's grace, we're getting ready to add 50 new ones. The elders don't know about that. (laughs) But we have 50 new applications that are coming in January. Hundreds of missionaries. How can we do this? By the grace of God to the glory of God. God has a testimony for the people amongst the lost folks who are saved. Now, let me just tell you here, if you're here and this is your first time or you're listening, live streaming somewhere online and you're not saved, ignore what we're saying here about money. God doesn't want your tithe first. He wants you. He wants you to call upon Jesus in faith. And the greatest kind of robbery is to live 70 or 80 years independently of the Lord where you say, this is my life, I'll do however I want. And you're free to do that. But that will be the greatest ripoff towards yourself. In fact, you'll remember this sermon if you die in that state. Because you will die eternally lost. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot give enough money to get into heaven. You come through the grace and the blood of the cross. You say, my sin is so big, I don't know that God can forgive me. Don't flatter yourself. Christ's blood is greater than your sin. He can save you, but you must come in a bankrupt state, acknowledging the sufficiency of his death, burial, and resurrection and putting your faith where he put your sin. Now, Holy Father, we thank you today for the time we've had as we continue our study in this great prophet of God. I pray and ask this morning that you'd help somebody here who knows you, who loves you, whose financial world is a mess. But thank you that when you save us, you save us to change us, to shape us, to help us understand your truth. You said we shall know the truth and the truth will set us free. You've never promised to make us rich or wealthy, but you've promised to meet our needs in a way that is fitting, in a way that is remarkably uh, true of who you are as the living and all-omnipotent God. May an unbelieving world see our lives and see that you provide in your way and in your time. I pray today for someone here who's lost, who's never met Jesus Christ. Help them to realize that if they will call upon him today in this moment, by faith they can be saved and forever changed. Thank you for your promise because Jesus did what he did, that whosoever will may come, and that whoever will call in the name of Jesus will be saved. And we ask this and pray this to your name for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.